In the bardo, subject and object are the same. You say, I'm not sure I understand what that means. There's somebody else with you in the bardo, and this other person is going through the same process you are. Or, to put it another way, there are many persons in the bardo, and they're all going through the same process as you. The place is crammed with people. So many. Do any of them understand this business better than you do? You say it again. I'm not sure I understand what that means. Means, says the other. I mean, since we can't suppose time has any purchase in this place, the present tense in your statement comes into question, rather, don't you think? Meant, means, will mean, I mean, who's to say? You say, huh? Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, if you haven't been with us before, this is a podcast built around the idea that you need a friend to finish any book larger than 500 pages. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, th- this, uh, but this will be a different version of the Big Readcast. We often read long books and talk about them for a long time. And then once a year, though, we decide to read a writer called Adam Roberts, and we get in way over our heads just by plowing through his magnificent books, and we invite someone on to help <laughs> to help us make sense of Adam Roberts. Not because he's not a eminently readable author, but because to read Adam Roberts is to be swarmed by ideas from page one. And uh, he's a very playful writer, but he is a writer of, of some intellectual density. So... Uh, Bill and I today are joined by Phil Chrisman. I'm going to give Phil a, a nice little actual intro for once, um, since I've never explained, I think, who Bill and I are. Let me explain who our guest is. <laughs> <laughs> um, Phil Chrisman teaches first-year writing at the University of Michigan and is the editor of the Michigan Review of Prisoner Creative Writing. His work has appeared in Harper's Magazine, Christian Century Pace, The Hedgehog Review, and tons of others. Um, He's got two collections of essays out, Midwest Futures, which we actually talked about on this podcast in 2020, and which is excellent, and the equally excellent recent How to Be Normal, which is not a self-help book, (laughs) but which is great. Um, TLS accurately called him one of the best essayists in America, and uh, yeah, Phil, welcome to the podcast, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's an honor. Uh, I I have uh, benefited enormously from reading your guys's shit posts over the years. Oh uh. <laughs> uh, no, we're really glad you're here. And um, we uh, we're gonna we're gonna for everyone listening at home. Um, you may remember if anyone's listened, you know, to this before. Uh, we we had Martin Wendell Jones on. I think like a year ago. I don't really remember when it was at this point. Yep. To talk about the um, to talk about Adam Roberts' other book, the thing itself, and we made him, you know, do a song and dance. We'll make Phil do that in a second, but I do want to also introduce kind of Adam Roberts, who's not here with us, but he, he's the guy we're going to be talking about today. Um, he's a British science fiction writer. Uh, in the words of Phil Chrisman himself, he's also the coolest fucking guy. Uh, uh, 
<laughs> he really is. He's a professor of 19th century literature at Royal Holloway, London University. He's written something like 22 novels, not including his nine works of long-form parody, including titles like The Sodet, The Dragon with the Girl Tattoo, and Doctor Whom, E.T. Shoots and Leaves. Uh, he's made more puns than most people have hair on their heads, and he's not only read, but apparently grokked both Kant and Hegel. Again, he's sort of kind of the coolest guy. So um, he deserves to be better known, but I, I did want to say, Phil, you, you've actually like interviewed him and chatted with him. Any context you want to add to the, the Adam Roberts you know, reputation? <laughs> yeah, do, do I want to go into more detail about how uh, cool he is? I mean, yeah, it was just an email interview uh, for my Substack. Uh, which I did around the time that this came out, actually. Um, yeah, no, he's just, he he's clearly a genius, and he's just very pleasant and unassuming, and, and uh, I've never, like, I he, he acts like, you know, he's, he's, he's a pretty nice guy. He's, he's, uh, he's not a, a, a dick, which if I were that smart, I might be. Uh, so that's, that's something that I always just, I don't know, that always... Uh, I guess because I, I do work in academia, and, and so I meet some very smart people who are um, who are prepossessing <laughs> rather than unprepossessing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, are, who, are, who, are not, who are not chill and funny and, and you know, like, relatively approachable. Uh, and I, I even meet some people who are not geniuses. Who, who in are, academia? <laughs> I know, I know. Who are, in fact, I meet quite a few who are not geniuses, but who comport themselves as though they they were uh, like stereo. You know, like if I'm rude enough, people will think I'm one. Uh, so that I, I don't know. That's that's something that shouldn't Im- impress me as much as it does, I guess. But it, it kind of does because it's it's very much not the baseline. Um, and I, I think one thing that does get overlooked with Roberts is that. Um, if you confined him to just one of the several hats he wears, he would cut a very impressive figure. Like if, you know, I mean, if, if you're aware of him as a, as a reader of fiction, it's probably because he's written, you know, a million science fiction novels. Uh, if he were just a scholar of uh, early 19th century literature and Coleridge in particular, he would also like if he just did that if you edited yeah. his career down to just that stuff he would still be a pretty impressive dude like he he edited one of the volumes of the the standard edition of coleridge i, th- I think it's the one with his his um notes on shakespeare um something like that he, he has he has and he has all these i mean i don't know if it makes sense with him to speak of like main projects and side projects it just seems like he his he, he is a spaghetti garden of just cool yeah, stuff a shotgun approach. Yep. I, I, i'm forever finding out that like uh you know i thought i was keeping up with him but uh on a secret you know 50th blog he has, he has, um, I don't know, he has been translating the Hypnorana Machia Polyphilae into um, Middle Dutch or something, you know? <laughs> no, I, I was I was personally <laughs> insulted that he translated Finnegan's Wake into Latin or whatever it was. Like, I, like I, I felt that one, that one hurt me, I, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, if it was, if it, almost anybody else, if you told me, they translated Finnegan's Wake into Latin. I'd be like, mm. 
do I want to meet this person? Probably not. But you know, it's 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 Adam. It's the the nice punning man on Twitter. So we, we yeah. So we're, we're gonna we're gonna get to the this, which is the novel of his we read, which um, came out this year, correct? Um, yes. And so uh, we're gonna get to the the book and, and to Hegel and whatever else. But I, I do I do want to say. Um, before we kind of make um, Phil do a song and dance about Hegel, <laughs> um, I, I, I think actually, I do think Adam Roberts' punning, good-natured playfulness is part of what makes him amazing to me, like as a person, I think, but also in his work, blogging, or his critical work, or certainly his science fiction. I mean, the first part, the first chapter of, of the This, you know, the novel we read, is this bizarre, formal, experiment of being in the bardo but it starts off with jokes and it actually it sustains itself with a joke taken from young frankenstein <laughs> yeah um and like the joke from young frankenstein is essential to like basically the entire arc of the novel in the end and so i, I think you know his accessibility really matters for why i think he's so brilliant um i don't mean to interrupt but frankenstein yeah, yeah you're absolutely right Joel, get out. <laughs> How could you? No, no, you're right. I mean, his the punning is it, it's 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 like uh, you know the wit that allows him to see uh, you know connections between seemingly very far flung and unrelated things that makes his his fiction so interesting, and then also makes his academic work. Um, and, and and his sort of para academic work, which I, you know, his his literature blogging, which which generally shows like um, some adherence to, to to I don't know, like he cites a lot of other books and stuff when he blogs about literature. He sounds smart. He sounds like you you know you could you could put this in the PMLA if you wanted to, but it also right. it also sounds human enough, um, you know, enough like a person on their feet talking uh, as. That was Pound that said that. Maybe it was Olson. Anyway, uh, it, it sounds unstuffy enough um, that that it's it's fun to read. But um, yeah, I mean the wit that sustains all of that. Um, yeah, I do think the punning is just a, a it's 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 like that engine in his head just sort of running off. Uh, it's it, like excessive energy this you know no it is yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly what it is he ha- like he has to get it out of himself it seems like <laughs> well I, I enjoyed phil in your interview with him you did for the Substack. you asked him the question i think he probably always gets asked which is basically how on earth do you do this so much and he said something to the effect of i don't really know what i think about something until i sit down and write three thousand words about it so in order to figure something out i have to do that i i don't know i just really i enjoyed that uh that honesty, I guess, about it, right? That he's he's like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to say yet. I'm figuring it out in text. And then if it's good enough, I put it on the blog. But also, you know, he does have, I think he said his 50th blog. He has like six different blogs across, I think, three different platforms for reasons that I, I think just because he enjoys being slightly perverse, maybe. But it's, I'm always tripping over a new one, right? I'm like, oh, he posted a link to an essay that sounds interesting on yet another blogspot site that I didn't know he had. Okay, this one's major theme is... I don't know. Like, it's something else he wants to... T- I mean, I think he's probably got an internal category, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes it's, like, per project. Like, um, like I know that when he was writing the H.G. Wells biography, there was a, you know, oh, I think it was called Wells at the World's End or something like that that was just him blogging through 
his read through of all of H.G. Wells, which, oh my God, you would have to pay me so much money to read some of that. I, oh, no, yeah. I know. I can't believe he did. Well, that's why he, he's a legit scholar. Like, he, he's able to do that. I mean, yeah, you, you literally couldn't pay me enough money to do that, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, his his brain clearly is, is capable of, of manufacturing dopamine uh, um, <laughs> with less provocation by novelty than mine. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, well, okay. So let's uh, let's turn to um, Hegel as a way to get to the this. So um, the this, Adam Roberts calls it even a, you know, a uh, kind of a novel that's in dialogue with the thing itself, which was his Kant sci-fi novel, and this is his Hegel sci-fi novel. And I, I just wanted to kind of emphasize, um, you know, if, if you're like me and you don't really know much about Hegel besides what has filtered down to you through various essays and whatever, um, you know, it's not a it's not a barrier to reading and loving this book. But I, I do think it helps to, if we're going to talk about it at length, it helps to kind of pinpoint what about Hegel might be, you know, driving a lot of this novel's form and a lot of its ideas. And since I, I've read basically no Hegel and Bill has read not much more, and Phil recently reviewed this book, and I think even read <laughs> actual Hegel. Um, Phil, we thought we'd ask you, like, what what about Hegel is is like most relevant for the this as a project? Famously easy to understand <laughs> philosophers. This is a very small project. Phil. Yeah. <laughs> so first of all, um, you you were saying a moment ago, uh, people don't have to read Hegel to make uh, to make sense of this book. Um, I, I would actively disrecommend reading Hegel for the sake of making sense of this book. Um, you know, pheno- phenomenology of, of mind was on my bucket list because I don't, I have a weird bucket list, I guess. That's a weird thing to have on your bucket list. Like most people is like, visit, visit this beach, have a threesome. And mine is like, read the phenomenology of mind. Um, that's pathetic. I can't believe, now that I've said that out loud, I'm reconsidering my whole life. But anyway, um, when I, when I told, I, I think I mentioned on Twitter to Roberts that I was, um, you know, I was taking this book coming out as kind of like the occasion, like, okay, it's time, it's time to dive in. Got to do it. Um, got to pull the trigger. And when I told him that he was, when I told Roberts that he was, he said something like, mate, are you, are you out of your mind? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> so and he, he was, he was right. You do not have to read Hegel to read the, this, um, and actually, uh, so the process of me reading phenomenology of being, of being or of, of mind, it, it depends on the translation, um, what the title is, but like one, it, it was like, reading certain sections over and over again like you do in college yeah. you know just uh, i don't know it's almost like when you're at the gym and, and you're you you think you think that you can squat a certain amount and then you try and then you fail and then you come back the next day and it's like no no today's the day today's the day and then you fail right. again and eventually you like you you like feel like maybe you stood all the way up with the bar on your shoulder and that's kind of what the experience of reading Hegel was like for me. Um, there, I, I was kind of trying to do, I don't know if you guys experienced this in undergrad, but where, where it feels like you're reading some intimidating uh, canonical work of philosophy, but you feel like you're just looking for the parts where 
it says something that sounds like all the summaries you've read. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's almost like yeah. it's almost like you you need commentators to sort of spot you or something. Um, I was trying to go beyond that, um, and and in the end, uh, all I really ended up getting from reading Hegel was like all the stuff that you would pick up in a sophomore philosophy class but but i had really really tried to understand it so i feel like i grasp it deeper somehow or or it feels more familiar um but yeah i mean it's still just basically things like you know the the idea that history and understanding and and mind uh they, they all kind of follow this triadic movement how do i how do any summary i give i i just can hear like 50 different people like nitpicking oh no no hegel would never say it that way but uh, you know so something is presented and then an opposite to that thing presents itself and then you or god or uh geist <laughs> sort of realizes some way in which um those two things those two opposites contain and require each other and you you arrive at a kind of synthesis and then that becomes the the beginning point uh for for some for some other thing and that this process just just is um that's that's the whole of existence (laughs) there it is um, I no. Well, I was gonna say I do. I mean, so it's, again, someone who doesn't really know Hegel, I don't. Again, I don't think you need to. I do feel like some of the catchphrases, like if you if you know anything about the catchphrases, they're almost sufficient. Like Bill and I were talking about, like um, you know, thesis antithesis is actually something that's like post Hegel that's applied to Hegel, right? Like to kind of describe what he's doing with you know antithesis, thesis, synthesis. But I feel like that's, you know, that is helpful for reading this book if you're trying to look for um, how are the ideas motivating the plot or whatever. You definitely see that movement within the book. Yeah. You do. No, you really do. Well, or even there's another one that was applied by um, a philosopher at some point in the 20th century, which was like, to be whole, you have to join a whole. Or it's something like that. I can't remember who said it. But I thought, like, that seems like, again, a perfect catchphrase to kind of at least start to uncover exactly how um roberts is you know using these ideas and really really truly like i mean it is crazy that he really does take these abstract ideas and he's like i'm gonna make a fun sci-fi novel that accurately enough distills you know the idea into plot but it's still a fun plot um i I do i find that incredible to be honest the 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 book structurally kind of is is disciplined by that hegelian logic um both like the the way the book unfolds it's 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 kind of unwieldy it's these several different parts um kind of slapped together which is um but not really like slapped together sounds like he's like it wasn't super carefully done i mean it it was very carefully done um oh yeah you know and the 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 very first section seems like it's just a preface, but it also is like 
way too long to just be pre to be just a preface and in some way it's like as complex as tri and trippy as anything else in the book which is definitely true of the preface to, to the phenomenology of mind i like actually found the opening <laughs> chapters easier i mean anytime you think that something in hegel is like oh i'm getting this this is easy it's probably illusory but um <laughs> yeah that 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 preface man oh I, I was just looking at that thing, just glassy-eyed, like, oh, no. Um, but then, I, I, this also relates to something, um, I know, I, I, I know this is in the, in the notes to be, to be brought up later, but, like, um, the structure of the book is similar, to, you know, Roberts talks, talks, uh, about his, um, in his interview with me and in his some of his other writing he talks about his interest in the fix-up as a as a literary form which is is a, a phenomena a phenomenon of the 20th century science fiction publishing uh, ecosystem where um you, you know you write a bunch of short stories that have some links or similarities between them or they take place in a shared world and uh, a publisher is like, you know, Ace or, 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 or Delray or whatever is like, hey, why don't you just slap those together and um, add some add some like very thin connecting material? We'll just call that a novel. And, and this is this is actually how some of the most uh, famous and revered science fiction story, uh, science fiction novels of all time get published i mean that's that's what the foundation uh trilogy is by isaac asimov yeah. it's a bunch of short stories uh, which i i think he wrote some connecting tissue um but the, you know there's a lot of stuff like this a lot of a lot of heinlein is like this um what's well, that's how fritz Leiber's stuff gets published where people can actually read it uh all of his short stories get very very loosely slapped together i mean with the exception of one of them they're very it's really not a novel at all but he always sort of pretends it is because he writes those little connective tissue pieces um so that's that's what i'm thinking of and he's so good at it yeah right the like fofford and the gray mouse mouser uh which are, are sort of like i've i've the the only really like the only pieces of sword and sorcery that rise to the level of literature in my experience in any way are uh, those stories and Samuel Delaney's Neverion stories, which are also kind of like this, um, and then and then um, the the Cerebus comic book uh, up to the point, <laughs> yes. uh, up to the point where he just becomes so simultaneously misogynistic and mentally ill that you just it's too much, you can't take it anymore. Um, but up up to that point, that there's something pretty compelling uh, about about just how how. Um, crazy and ambitious that thing becomes but yeah so the but the um samuel delaney points this out the the fix-up form and just the science fiction series of short stories in general it almost has like a kind of inherently hegelian shape to it because you know in in if in one of the foundation stories for example you know the main characters will be presented with some threat to the foundation that is going to like throw off this this whole carefully worked out plan uh and and just blow up the universe that the author has created and so then the you know the typical asimov genius protagonist um f figures out some solution to that problem and then invariably that solution becomes the problem that originates the next story 
right? <clears throat> in in working through this like conflict between two diametrically opposed things, you wind up at a third thing, which then in turn ends up having its its own antithesis that has to be worked through to a synthesis. Um, so so it like yeah, uh, science fiction short stories um, tend to to follow that Hegelian logic and then the fix up as a form becomes, uh, you know, it, it calls attention to that logic because you're just watching that happen over and over and over again within the scope of only 300 pages or so, if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, no, I think, I think, yeah, no, I think that makes um, sense in general, but I also, I do think a little bit, what I, and I'm going to, pitch it to you bill in just a second um to kind of talk about this more specifically but i i do think what i love about roberts is he has so much fun with playing it like playing those ideas out at the macro level of like you know the chapters kind of creating uh thesis antithesis but then also within the within the actual plot there's just a continual you know like um continually like oh the virus and the antivirus are creating this new super you know technology um he kind of he kind of never leaves it alone at every level of the writing um including even like POV, you know, who's go back and forth between second and third or first and third, you know, as a way to kind of keep creating stuff, um, that triad movement. But, but yeah, so Bill, so do you want to, I mean, I built, I mean, Hegel was, is hard enough to, to, to capture, but you know, can you give it a shot with the, this, what's the, this about Bill? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give it a shot here. Um, so obviously we usually keep our summaries at a very thousand foot level. Um, usually cause the books are a thousand pages long here. It's only 300 pages long, so it's not that long, but it's very uh, dense, by which I don't mean that it's necessarily hard to read. I think one of Roberts's great gifts as a writer is, even though he's writing these super high-concept things, the tone is always very playful and fun, like we were sort of saying earlier. It's really not that hard to follow what's going on, but to accurately summarize all the stuff going on in one of these books takes a minute. I'm going to try to be faster than I was in The Thing Itself, uh, our podcast on that, where I think I talked for 20 minutes. Um... So the this uh, came out this year, as we said, uh, in England, it came out in like February or so. And then I think it actually only officially crossed the shores a few months ago in the United States. So if you're lazy like me and just pre-ordered it on Amazon, you didn't get it until June. Um, but it's subdivided into nine chapters, um, each, each of which is also, or many of which are also subdivided further. Uh, these range from 17 pages to I think the longest one is like 80 pages long. Um, the book has a framing narrative in the first and ninth chapter, which are each called In the Bardo. The Bardo is a concept, I believe, from Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, to speak very, very gen generally, it's the sort of limbo or purgatory state that souls spend in between reincarnated lives. Um, obviously, because I'm a Philistine, I first became acquainted with the concept about five years ago when I read George Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo, which is another very trippy book. Oh, really? um, I, I learned about Bardo's in a much more respectable way, which is trying to figure out uh, so. what David Bowie is talking about in the song Quicksand. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> your yeah, thing is cool, too, I guess. <laughs> All right, Phil, come on. Be nice. <laughs> No, uh, so the, the first and ninth chapters are written in the second person. Uh, the character who's going through things in the bardo is you, right? So the first uh, first two sentences of the book are, in the bardo, subject and object are the same. You say, I'm not sure I understand what that means, which is, of course, 
just great because it's here's the high concept thing we're doing and yeah i know that doesn't make any sense bear with me um so basically the person going through the experiences in the bardo uh, understands that they are reincarnating through every single human life that has ever existed uh and most of them they're a farmer <laughs> you are a farmer you are a farmer you are a farmer is a recurring line at one point it's an entire paragraph of it um and this sets up the fundamental sort of uh, metaphorical stuff that he's doing with the idea of the subject and object being the same. It also ends up introducing very important plot stuff, even as for quite a while it feels like it's just sort of a fun framing narrative, which Roberts is known to do. Purgatory Mount is another book he wrote that I read this year, which has an elaborate framing narrative, which is connected to the plot, but it's more sort of metaphorically resonant than actually that important to the plot. But we'll, we'll talk about this book, not the other book, where we'll be here all day. Um, there are kind of two major plots going throughout the this, which he mostly alternates between. Uh, there, there are other plots as well, but these are just sort of the major ones. Uh, one is set maybe 20 minutes into the future. Um, there's a guy named Rich. His chapters are called Rich, Richer, and Richest, which is very good. Uh, Rich is a sort of mediocre guy. Like, he's a nice enough guy, but he's not really done much. He's got a big fantasy novel he's working on that he's never going to finish, and he's got his his day job is he writes these little. So in this point, almost all internet writing is done by AIs, but occasionally you still need to actually hire somebody on a gig economy basis to go out and have an interview with somebody that the AI can then turn into, you know, the full piece that's being published on BuzzFeed or whatever. So that's what Rich does. He's a writer, but again, as a practical basis, that means he just goes out and does five minutes of work every so often and gets paid on a gig economy basis. But he gets tangled up with a social media company called The This, which is pitched as basically just an implant you put in the roof of your mouth to experience hands-free Twitter, right? So you can just always be on Twitter all the time. Uh, but is actually, as it turns out, basically becoming a hive mind and is trying to continue becoming a hive mind, striving forward, and is in conflict with the government and various other people, killing people sometimes who are in its way. Uh, without going into a lot of detail, Rich gets tangled up in the hive mind, uh, is hired by the government to try to be a sleeper agent in it, so they put a, a virus in his brain, which when he then gets the, the, this implant, will cause the virus to release into the hive mind and hopefully destroy it. As it actually turns out, what's happening is the hive mind is aware of this, and they actually want this virus as sort of like a, almost like a vaccination, right? Like a controlled introduction of hostile code into the architecture of the this, which they can learn from, because it's like a, it's one of those like ever-evolving quasi-sentient viruses, right? So they can learn from it and then incorporate it into their structure and become stronger. And in fact, it turns out that this is going to be necessary for them to really achieve the apotheosis they're searching for. Um, I'll come back to how that story ends in a moment. The other half of the story or the other third, I guess, of the story, is about um, much further into the future, there is a hive mind called HM Theta, hive mind Theta, uh, no points figuring out where that came from, right, uh, which is uh, engaged in a sometimes cold, sometimes hot war with sort of regular ungestalted humans. Um, we have a scene where a woman basically tries to sm sort of smuggle in a super weapon that... Uh, or you know, try to hide the existence of a super weapon from them. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about that, but it's a good chapter. And then later on, we meet a random dude who's alive in this timeline. His name is Adon, or Adon. I'm not sure how we're supposed to say it. Uh, and Adon is a really schlubby dude who doesn't, you know, who doesn't really contribute anything to life. Uh, but he ends up joining the army 
and it turns out that he has a secret weapon, uh, which he doesn't understand. So the main thing for this chapter is the existence of Fino women and Fino men, because again, Adam Roberts is the punniest man alive. A fiend is, uh, so it's functionally a phone that you take with you and you use to make phone calls, but it is a phone in the shape of a human body that wanders around and can have sort of chatbot conversations with you. And most importantly, that you can use as a sex doll. Um, which is just a bonkers idea. So Adon is so in love with his phone that he literally uh, it. That is that is how his character works. At some point, somebody hacks the phone, or the fiend, rather, gives him a line that he's supposed to say when he's in combat. He joins the army. He gets into a fight. He says the line, which is a reference to, which is a line from uh, Coleridge's Kubla Khan, uh, weave a circle around me thrice. And when he says it, the robots immediately stop. It's like a kill switch. Uh, so the humans are interested in that. They try to take him to Venus, where the hive mind are trying to terraform Venus. Uh, but Adon doesn't actually help them because he realizes they're going to try to kill his fiend, and that makes him very sad. So he gets incorporated into the hive mind. Then, we first of all, we have a little brief uh, 1984 riff, which we're going to have to talk about a lot because I don't fully understand what it's about. But it's fun. It's a really great sort of, he calls it 2084. It's a 1984 riff where there's Oceania, or East Asia, and Eurasia. But they're hive minds rather than just like totalitarian states, right? It's an alternate universe where basically 1984 happens, but they, they have similar technology to this, and so they're in a hive mind. And then Adon ends up going to, I don't know, sort of the Bardo, basically. It's sort of an extra dimensional space where he meets Abby Solute, the Absolute, the person that the person in the Bardo is talking to and then also becomes, who reveals that basically uh, so this person is God, right, essentially. And this person reveals that hive minds disrupt the proper formation or becoming of the absolute, which is God, because they prevent people from dying. And this whole system requires people to live and learn and love and suffer and die and then get those sort of experiences and that sort of energy reincorporated into the absolute. And in a hive mind, your consciousness never dies. And so you don't go back into the system. And so, you know, Shinra Corp is sucking up all of the Mako out of the live stream. None of the rest of you are going to get that reference, but I saw an opportunity for a Final Fantasy VII reference, and I had to do it. Um, and so Abby Solute has actually been interfering in the timeline uh, to stop that from happening because they're going to go back and kill Rich before the mind virus can get incorporated into the system. They succeed in doing that, but they had to get into the system through a dawn, through sort of a reverse time travel thing. And uh, then the book ends with a little sort of one-page essay about love. Um, it's great. It's an incredible novel. Did I miss any major things? No, I'm, I, I can't think of anything. I'm just like winded thinking again about what the experience of reading these <laughs> like, You just, you just pulled one of several of my muscles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I did it in about, in, in less time too. So I'm getting better at, at hurting our guests. So that's... <laughs> Um, what, what's fun, I think, is that it's basically a very, like, literal thought experiment, you know, like, in the thing itself, Kant's categories are correct, like, they are the literal way the universe works, and that's what he's trying to do, I think, here with Hegel. I, I, do, think, I do think he's a little more ambivalent about what he thinks of Hegel's literal world, um, but I, I guess I wanted to start with In the Bardo, because that's the introduction to, you know, the, the, whole, the whole idea, the whole thought experiment, and so I was curious, and either of you can go for this, but... Um, why is this bonkers, incredible chapter like a sort of literalizing of Hegel's philosophy? Like, how does it literalize, you know, those concepts into like the world as it works? 
I mean, I think it definitely functions as kind of a nice overture. Like if 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 you don't catch the direct quotes from the phenomenology of being that occur in a later section of the book, where where they're kind of you know more or less cleverly hidden, you know that this this part tells you, um, you know exactly what kind of philosophical story is being told here, um, and then the the whole page or more of you are a farmer you are a farmer you are a farmer amazing you die you die um for me what that does is to um it foregrounds the violence of of hegel's philosophy um that you know that there's an ethical problem here which is is that it kind of requires death um and, and I mean, the ending, as, as you pointed out, kind of, you know, spells that out even more clearly. But, um, you know, I mean, just that crushing weight of, you know, uh, you get this kind of gangrene, you get poisoned this way. You, you're a farmer and you die. You're a farmer, you're a farmer, you're a farmer, you're a farmer. Um, just how um, viscerally, like... I don't know. For me, that was pretty upsetting, and, and and it's also just this brick of text falling on you. Um, so I don't know if yeah. For me, the 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 big effect that that has is is uh, yeah to to point up how violent the Hegel's whole schema is. Yeah, no, that, that's really good. I actually, in some ways, I, I hadn't thought about the violence as much as I should have. But you're right. There there's something really hard about reading the repeated deaths kind of one after the other like that and and yet at the same time this is what I, I find wild about about Adam Roberts is that like um, I, I also I mean I kind of went through like the roller coaster of emotions as far as like you get to the you you are a farmer section I, mean, I laughed I mean like the, I can't believe like the, that's such like a he has such chutzpah to go for that you know he, like hey <laughs> I'm like this is the kind of novel this is going to be like the idea is going to be kind of maximalized I mean in, in some senses again I think the thing itself has as much to do with Joyce as it does with Kant, and I do think I think in so many ways he is a maximalist. He is he is going to take the thing as far as he can take it formally, and otherwise. And I also think I think the use of the you know second person is really important because I also I you know obviously like it's asking for the reader to explicitly identify you know with you know what's going on. But but honestly, the second person to me like the longer you use it in a book the more it stabilizes into a backdoor first person, you know? So it, it does create this like immediate effect of doubleness of like, it is both, you know, asking you to identify, but it is stably someone else who you're reading about. Um, and I, I mean, that's, so I, I, I just, I, I feel like that's, that's the brilliance of Roberts for me is that this huge playful kind of maximalist project, you know, you are a farmer for, you know, <laughs> like a whole page or whatever it was. But then also at the, at the level of kind of point of view, he, he's also still creating the same sort of, I don't know, he's seeing the concept through at, a, at various levels, which I just, I mean, I don't know, again, I, I think he's doing a lot of it instinctually, but, um, but it does prepare you for the whole book, like the high concept, the joke. And then um, I just think it's really um, ambitious to say, Here's the literal metaphysics of this world. Like, like I, I don't, I mean, I think some science fiction writers try to do this, but they're often, like, working in a Terry Pratchett mode, which I don't take as seriously, to be honest. 
but I think he, he is convincing about here are the limits and the real, like the ultimate realities of this world kind of put into a form that you can read about and have fun with, but it's still kind of like intellectually compelling. Um, but I also, yeah, I, I mean, I, the first chapter, I, I honestly, I started reading it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a, an absolute, um, I don't know, joyride, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, the two biggest emotions I feel when I'm reading Roberts and, and, and they, they kind of, they alternate very violently um, is on the one hand, like a kind of lightness and even joyfulness um, because he is because he is funny. Um, you know, he he comes up with these, you know, these sort of inc- incredibly clever devices that just kind of make you go, oh, that's that's brilliant. You know, um, he's he's good at puns. His characters are likable and charming. Um you know, so it is. It is kind of like the feeling of of hanging out with your your cool, funny friend who's who's always like just a couple of turns of the crank ahead of where you are. And then at the same time, the other biggest emotion that I tend to be left with uh, from reading him is like a kind of woundedness or grief <laughs> because yeah. his. I always forget before I start reading them. Like, but his books are usually pretty violent. And he's so good at describing violence. Like, um, I read Haven a couple of years ago, which is a, a post-apocalyptic novel of his. Um, I don't know that I would like characterize it as being among his his major works, but I'm, nothing that he writes isn't worth reading. Um, and I, I just remember being like, my God, you know, he just never runs out of ways to describe being physically tortured <laughs> he's really good at it. um you know like vivid new ways that make you go oh that's what that would feel like oh god um and and yeah i somehow he's he's able to 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 get away with both of those i think my favorite example of robert's describing violence i've only read three robert's books right i've read the thing itself of this and purgatory mount but in Purgatory Mount, one of the characters is on a bus during a, like the outbreak of a civil war, and a bomb goes off in the front of the bus, or in front of the bus, rather. Maybe it's a missile, but there's an explosion, and it kind of picks the bus up and somersaults it and throws it through the air. And it's written from the perspective, I think it's third person, but it's still very close from the perspective of our main character, who's in the bus and doesn't understand what's happening for like three or four pages. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And she's picked up and thrown in the air in the bus, and she's like, the ground's coming up in front of us, and we're driving up at like a 60 degree angle and that doesn't make any sense and everybody's screaming and I can't sit down because the gravity's wrong and you know just this very confused sense as this explosion which you know what in real time it would have taken you know 20 seconds he stretches it out over I forget how long four or five pages you know three four five pages something like that and it was just this really wonderful bit of writing uh that of course is describing this sort of horrible it was really violent, really horrible event, but in a way where the, the primary ex- emotion you're experiencing is confusion because Audie doesn't understand what's happening until it's already, you know, mostly over. Uh, and that's just, that's such a cool thing. Uh, you know, and, and the bus crash could have been just, and then the bomb went off and the bus crashed and it would have been fine, right? But it's he just always, really he always gives you He always gives you a little more vividness. Uh, yeah, like he, he could get away with doing a little less. But he never does. <laughs> no, he, no, I, I, no, I, and I think actually, I really think he can't. I was even thinking like, um, 
it's almost like a Victorian mode of foreshadowing, but he has this way of even doing these, like, almost like image puns, to be honest. So there's a character in this novel, a trooper, who's almost like just kind of a throwaway character in some ways, um, who, you know, there's in, in, the, uh, in the further timeline, we have kind of like two heroes, Rich, which you talked about, Bill, right, and then the, the trooper, and one of the trooper's buddies, um, ha- like one of the main characters, he has this basically sex doll phone. They all have these sex doll phones. And one of the guys in the army is like, yeah, you only need a, you only need a sex doll phone up to the waist. That's all you need it for. You know, very crude, very crass, very accurate to military people, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> but then that same guy who kind of is crass and crude about only needing a you know a sex doll up to the waist, he when he's blown apart, uh, we only see, we we only see his um, from the waist down. Like that's the part of the body that the main character sees. And so it's like he's kind of doing almost this Victorian foreshadowing, but he's also like he's laying those images on, on top of each other. And I, I think he, he's just like even the smallest ideas, he literally kind of can't leave alone until he's maybe touched it once or twice or three, you know, two, two or three more times than the first time he did it, which, I, I again, it's partly why I love him. But I do think sometimes like he actually probably could pull back and have have sometimes a more efficient version of the same effects. But it's hard because that's the engine of his creativity, you know? So, like, you can't ever shut that off, I think. And so the, the fundamental uh, line that is repeated most often in the first, well, I guess You Are a Farmer probably outpaces it, but it's only in that one chunk, is some variation on the line, in the bardo, the subject and object, or subject and object are the same, right? And sort of like we're talking about, he says that in so many words it's literally the first line of the novel he repeats it you know a dozen times in that chapter and a couple of other times throughout somebody else makes a joke about how subject and object are the same uh, Hel- helena susanna does the old woman but also this idea of the like joel was talking about the second person collapsing into first person well that's because the subject and object are the same right yeah exactly and that so he he takes something he'll say it out loud and then he'll also use you know, a dozen metaphors and literary devices to bring form, uh, br- bring home that same idea in a way which is just super cool, I guess is really what I have to say. Um, but I also like, I like the first line of the chapter a lot too, because it feels like one of those strong, weird sort of meso- metaphysical opening lines from a lot of stuff I like. So, you know, the first line of The Haunting of Hill House, right? No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even Larks and Katie Dids are said by some to dream, which is Shirley Jackson setting the thesis of her book in the first line, or, you know, Lovecraft. Uh, the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents, right? It's just this weird sort of preface thesis. Like, this is what the story is about. It's not a narrative line. So Roberts does that in the bar to the subject and object the same, and then he immediately makes a joke about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's just very cool, right? Because it's both doing the thing that these other slightly older style of writers did, but then also complexifying it and making jokes about it. And showing that he's willing to not hold your hand, but he's going to help you out, right? He's not going to expect you to immediately know what that means. Um, and I just, it's, it's a great opening chapter because it, it tells you the stakes. It tells you how the metaphysics work. It makes a number of funny jokes. And it, it illustrates through the form of it how this book is going to work. Um, and, you know, it's like 17 pages long. He's cool. Yeah, no, so I, I was going to, so, I mean, I, I won't go like chapter by chapter, but obviously this book is, is largely about social media to an extent and the second chapter begins or or just is completely um a normal kind of narrative and then as footnotes basically um is the running feed of the main character's twitter essentially and um one i thought i was curious how how effective you guys thought that was but two like i want to know literally specifically how you read it (laughs) like page by page (laughs) you know like what like (laughs) 
because it's on oh. the on the page right. it is it is double columned which is is something i've seen in a few other literary texts but yeah it's um you have to make sort of strategic decisions and adjustments about your reading strategy as you go on it's, so I think what I did is I, I would read the I tried to read everything on the page more or less at the same time, but I would I would read Rich's narrative until it was an obvious starting stopping point, and then I would go back and read the Twitter feed up to you know the end of a tweet at about the same thing. So I tried to so I tried to sort of interpolate the two. Uh, it's obviously a bit disorienting to do that, but that's what I tried to do. I don't know what you guys did. I think I basically did that. I mean, yeah, the left column is sort of exposition and then the right column is just, it's it's a drip, drip, drip of a Twitter feed. I think I started out like reading what felt like logical blocks of text on the left and then jumping over to the right when I hit a starting page, uh, when I hit a, or when I hit a stopping point rather. Um, and I think after a couple of pages, I just started um drifting back and forth incoherently in a way which i you know because i have adhd real bad and <laughs> i have to say that like definitely replicated the panicked feeling of scrolling twitter when it's like no yeah. i need to when you can feel your executive functioning shutting down like no <laughs> i'm not enjoying this anymore Nothing cool is going to happen if I scroll far. If I scroll a little farther, I need to do literally anything else. Um, I was going to teach myself Sanskrit this year, you know. Like you're, th you're thinking all of that, <laughs> and then you just keep scrolling. You know, you're like, no, I'm just going to keep. I'm just going to keep drinking this garbage. Um, I mean, he he definitely did conjure that feeling. Well, it, for me, I mean, for me, I actually, actually, in some ways, this is, um, and so in the uh, the edition that I have, and I had the ebook as well. The edition I have, like the uh, the narrative text is on top, and the the like the Twitter text is below it, basically. Oh, that's so interesting. So every, I, yeah. I only have the yeah. The e it sounds like the ebook and the print version do it slightly differently. I, th I think so, and I, I so I read a little bit in both actually, um, but in in both cases I, I ended up doing kind of what you did, Phil. Like I was I was I tried to be very programmatic programmatic about it at first, you know, page by page basically, and then I I couldn't do it anymore, and I I did drift, and I what I loved about it is that in in my personal opinion. I usually hate footnotes in fiction books. I mean, I, I get I get the whole postmodern project or whatever, you know, um, the unnameable, you know, or <laughs> shouldn't be named David Foster Wallace. And Susanna Clark actually does it as well. And um, Jonathan Strange and Dr. Nor or, you know, oh, that book, Mr. Norrell. Um, and uh, but so anyway, so by, I actually I do always find it to be like a frustrating experience because you can't focus. Um, and I thought that, like, I thought that this was one of the best deployments of it because that's the whole point, you know, the whole point is that this is supposed to make the life you're reading about hazy. And again, it's this, not to like hammer at home, but I think the book hammers at home. It's again, kind of a, a thesis antithesis, like something like something third is being created out of these two competing experiences, right? Traditional narrative and sort of like contextless uh, Twitter feed dumping, and I, I, I and so I, I found it like a little harder to get through than I wanted to. But I also was like, you know, this actually has a purpose to its difficulty, as opposed to just, 
you know, and I don't know. I, so I thought it was, again, kind of brilliant, but also I did. I was like, next chapter, next chapter, next chapter. <laughs> it's one of those experiments that works. For, for me, it's one of those experiments that works partly because it isn't carried out any longer than it is. Yeah, amen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it works because it ends. Yeah. <laughs> I was a little worried he was going to do it throughout all of Rich's chapters, and I agree. I think that would have been way too much, but I think... Just doing it in Rich's first chapter, which is also the one where Rich is most sort of sort of hazily wandering through life checking Twitter, right? Uh, I think it works really well. But yeah, if you did it throughout the whole book or the whole, that, it would be way too much. So um, I think I think we can maybe agree that that means that this is better than House of Leaves. I don't know. You tell me what you guys think. <laughs> you know, I've never I, read I, House of Leaves. I haven't either. I know. Uh, I'm just the right level of internet scumbag to have gotten into House of Leaves when it came out. Uh, it's it's a mess. I, I don't know if I'm recommending it, but, uh, you know, if you're really bored and maybe... There's actually... There's a, there's a Samuel Delaney uh, essay that uses this device. Um, it's like a personal essay, and it's him describing being at a times square adult theater uh and taking part in group sex activities uh in in the sort of like i think pre-aids world or maybe it's the very early 1980s um and it kind of i mean i guess it kind of works uh there um i mean it definitely gets it get it gives you a sense of like Boy, a lot of things are always happening in Samuel Delaney's head at any given moment. Uh, he's, he's 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 having sex with a guy who's obsessed with his shoes, and he's also thinking about Derrida. You know, like that's that's. And then there's a Joyce Carol Oates story that I read way back in grad school. Um, that I don't remember anything about it except that it does this. Uh, so I guess I've got to say it didn't didn't work that well in that case. Yeah, it's, 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 I, I, I do, I, I love it. I mean, I, I hate to be, um, I, I am this kind of internet dirtbag. Uh, I, I love it in Infinite Jest. I love reading the, going to the notes and reading the entire, uh, filmography of, of Hal's dad. And I also think, I, I guess one reason I like this section is that I think it's actually pretty hard to parody Twitter um like with most things that just that that are flatly ridiculous right from the get-go and aren't pretending not to be um and i think he does a pretty good job of it oh i think i think he kills it i mean i think the form creates that the like you said the form creates the feeling of reading, reading twitter but let's also we should give a shout out to the specific content like i don't in, you know, so Adam Roberts is like the king of the pun, right? And specifically, his Twitter feed is sort of just like, did this man invent puns? Where, like, where did he come from with this brain made for puns? And, right. uh, April, and uh, April 7th at Carlucci's Caesar Salad for me. I'm eating it in historically appropriate fashion by stabbing it repeatedly with a knife. <laughs> yeah. But I'm pumped. He's here all week. I, so I laughed, I laughed out loud more than once um at the actual like invented twitter feed including like um sex and hexity <laughs> like i just like you know the philosophical sitcom known as sex and hexity i was like oh my gosh only adam roberts could do that what i also like in the twitter feed he's got so he, he parodies like he's got a lot of puns in there which some of them i think may actually be from his twitter feed but it's certainly they feel like they could be but s- some of them he's also got you know sort of throwaway 
uh, people asking questions about the this, right? So it's helping to show that this is a major thing people are thinking about, right? This the social media company. But he also has, you know, spam stuff like, I forget the exact line, but it's like, really, really enjoyed reading your content. Thank you. Link, link, link. Yeah, Which yeah. he repeats about 20 times, I don't know, 20, but, you know, several times throughout the sort of spam comments that you get on Twitter uh, when you post links to things. And also these moments of, like, people just, like, experiencing, like, soul-crushing loneliness and just throwing messages in bottles out into Twitter about how sad they are, which is a big part of Twitter, uh, or at least it can be. And he gets a few of those in there, too. Somebody just saying something like, is anyone listening to me? Can anyone hear this? I need help. You know, and that'll just be in the next will be another pun and, and then another, you know. <laughs> Someone saying, uh, this person by the, you know, Russ Collister sexually assaulted me and barking on Tuesday night. Why won't you answer my calls, Essex, please? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which that that is Certainly. that is the thing of Twitter. You're you're scrolling along like wait, you know, I'm I'm waiting for, you know, Bill to say something funny uh or Adam Roberts to make a pun and and meanwhile, I'm scrolling past like people who I don't really know but maybe am like 3 degrees of separation away from and it's like they're GoFundMe because someone just died, you know. Yeah. And you're yep. like, god no. I really, A, I would love to do something about this. Um, and I mean, if it's a GoFundMe, I guess you can at least donate money. But um, often you're just hearing these awful stories about people's lives and you can't do shit, you know? Uh, and it, he does, he, he, he captures that aspect of Twitter as well. The weird sort of half friendships you have on Twitter, do you know what I mean? Where like, because there are people I've met on Twitter that are actually friends of mine, right? And then there's all these other people that I like talked to a lot in 2013 when we were both games bloggers, right? Like we probably would talk every day, but I haven't talked to them in years since. And their wife just left them and they're going through like some other mental health crisis. And I'm like, well, if this was a friend of mine at the bar, I'd say, hey man, you know, can I get you a drink? Let's talk through it. But like, I don't really know this person anymore, but I once sort of did, but I'm privy to all of their deepest darkest secrets apparently because they've chosen to talk about them on twitter which you know i, I get and, and this weird like what is my social relationship to this person now what am i supposed to do because obviously some random dude showing up and being like tell me about your trauma sally is not fun right but on the other hand like this person is sort of an acquaintance of mine <laughs> I, I never know how to handle that so i usually just get off of twitter for a few hours when that comes up sometimes sometimes i say i say something sympathetic um, and sometimes I think uh, that that's just going to be annoying at this point, you know? Yeah. 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 So the, the, the other book that's about Twitter that Roberts made a connection to that I think we should probably talk about in context of the whole project. Anybody else read Patricia Lockwood's nobody, no one else is talking or no one is talking about this. Yeah. 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 So Roberts drew a connection between the two books, um, himself on one of his blogs. Um, and so that's the other book about Twitter that I think came out in the last few years that a lot of folks were talking about. And Patricia Lockwood, who wrote it, uh, it's her first novel. She wrote a memoir called Priest Daddy, which was pretty funny that I read this year, too. Um, and I think she's actually primarily a poet. But she wrote this novel. She, she, uh, she is primarily a poster. Yes. And, and yes. I, well, I, I, say that, <laughs> I say that like not slightingly at all. Um, Patricia Lockwood is the author of the great at Paris Review, so is Paris any good or not? Tweet. I forgot that was her. Oh my god, she she's one well, she of wrote... the great aphorists of of, our, of of this time period. I mean, she rocks. The... She wrote maybe the greatest weird Twitter tweet of all time, which is the tweet about the cat, 
Um, you know, me nudging Miette out of the way. You're in the way, please. Miette, her eyes like sauce. This is not quite right, but you know, her eyes like fish bowls. You, you kick, kick Miette? You, you kick, kick her body like the football? Oh, oh, jail for mother. Jail for mother for 1,000 years. Which is, I mean, it's one of the greatest weird Twitter posts of all time. It's right up there with I am four eels and the briefcase full of jelly beans. Um, and so she writes this book, which is, it's very heavily based on her own life, where she's a poster who, you know, writes about posting and then... As a family tragedy, uh, one of her sister's child is born with, I forget what it is, but it's a just a really miserable, um, you know, disability that uh, is, is almost certainly going to kill this kid and is going to be bad the whole time, right? Which is pretty close to what happened in real life, is my understanding. Uh, and so it's about her. The first half of the book is her doing her sort of Twitter life, and the second half is her going home and trying to like help her family. And it's a good book. It's not, I think. I think the two halves maybe don't quite work because they're very much it's sort of like it, it, it can it kind of sums down to like Twitter is not the real world. This is the real world. Right. And I, the book is trying to do more than that. It's a little more complicated than that. But I think it can kind of be summarized as that. But the first half of the book, which is written in little aphorisms, um, little tweets and little like maybe a paragraph at most usually is just wonderful as this is what Twitter's like. Right. And I don't think any of the tweets are actual real tweets. I think she wrote all of them, but they feel very much like they come from it. And I, so, you know, it's interesting to read two books about Twitter. I think I read the Lockwood book last year, um, which came out like two years ago, maybe a year ago. So it's, it's kind of fun to have two books that are both about Twitter. And Adam Roberts has a little essay where he talks about the two books together, which was, was, was fun. So I don't know if I have much, much more to say about it other than just, yes, there's another book doing it. Maybe that was my whole point. Well, that's a, that's a valid point. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, 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 I I don't want to zoom out too much, but since we're on the topic, I, so this this book to me feels um, well. I, actually, Phil, you you did a you, know, you kind of included this book in um, um, in your in your books uh, article for the you know for Plow Magazine. You talked about the this and Adam Roberts, um, and you kind of talked about like the ending is a is equivocal. You know, like he's Adam Roberts seems equivocal to co- sort of the world he's made, the violence of you know, the Hegelian absolute or whatever. But it, so there's a big question of like, how does he feel about the Hegelian model? But I also think, you know, in, in the footnote to this book, he talks about the malign forces of social media. But of course, like I, I partly know Adam Roberts through Twitter, which is always the conundrum. But I, I'm curious, like I, I, I couldn't actually quite, and maybe you don't need to, maybe this is just my, you know, Philistine take on it, but I, I couldn't quite nail down what this book wanted me to take away about Hegel and social media, which I think might be why it's good. Uh, but I am curious, like, if you guys think we're supposed to take a certain, or if the book maybe has a certain definitive stance toward the Hegelian world, and also just toward, you know, like, the acceleration of Twitter seems to be a very bad thing based on this book, except that, of course, he, he's really good at saying everyone's happy. Everyone really loves it. They're their best self. So I don't know. I was just curious, yeah, what you guys would add to that, maybe. I mean, what your take seems basically accurate to me, um, that that in the universe of this book it's it's ultimately bad and destructive but he just doesn't want to make it too easy um so so he does he does emphasize uh you know the the happiness and and i mean he creates a social media network that in some ways is like twitter and in some ways actually sounds like it's much more successful at delivering what um all social media, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we were told was going to deliver, um, you know, the, the this actually does. I mean, it, 
it goes right into your brain and it really does in loneliness unfortunately you know i mean uh, the ending especially the book seems to suggest that um <clears throat> that that dying is part of your job uh being alone <laughs> is, is 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 part of your job as a human being um but yeah i i my, i i guess my general feeling was that yeah he agrees that social media is pretty terrible but doesn't want to stack the deck too much or too easily i also think that i think you talked about uh his sort of ambivalence towards hegel i think that at the end of the thing itself so robert obviously doesn't think this is how the world actually works right in kant right i mean for one thing because he, he follows out the logic of kant and says well if we actually take all this we end up with like a loving god right and then he takes that very seriously. But he says that, like, of course, Robert is an atheist, right? And he, he writes in the afterward to the thing itself. This is also partly a book by an atheist about why you should believe in God, right? Which is very funny. But I think that... Yeah, I was, I was, reading, I was reading the end of the thing itself. Like, yes! Yeah, like, like the sickos, uh, the, the sickos illustration. I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> you're right, Adam. This, you're absolutely right. Amen. God is love. <laughs> you've done it yeah well you know like uh, yeah. but i do think that he comes away thinking like if this metaphysics was real like that's maybe kind of a cool world right like i could be fine with this right yeah, whereas right. i don't know if that's his takeaway from hegel like he takes hegel very seriously he comes up with a way to make sense of it and at the end of it i don't know if he's like and i'd like to live there whereas he might say that about the thing itself right like <laughs> um so i th- I think that's part of it. He, he's trying to square it. He's trying to make sense of the violence inherent in the system. Boom. Oh, I <laughs> um, but I don't think he can do it in a way that he's entirely happy with. But that's because that's the project, right? Like that's the that's the constraints of Hegel's system is there's no way for us to be happy with it exactly, right? Or at least not for Adam Roberts with his particular. Yeah, I mean, I right. I I think. I mean, the way I wrote about the this was. Uh, in in the in my plow column um, that that you just mentioned uh, is is partly constrained by yeah the fact that like whew, Hegel's Hegel's system is vast and beautiful and cathedral like and it also uh, you know creeps me out somewhat I don't I don't know man <laughs> no that's I think that well it creeps you out is like the perfect way to summarize it because there's actually your point about the thing itself I think is it was vital to my experience, at least, because um, the Hegelian absolute, who's basically a, a character in this novel, and again, kind of a, a jokey character, right? Um, and so, even though like a lot of serious things are done, like actually some of the some of the most kind of you know um, disconcerting violence maybe involves the Hegelian absolute reaching down and doing things in the timeline or whatever. But but actually, I. <sighs> I actually am not sure the text, except for maybe the first chapter, ever really takes uh, the character of Abby. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't think it ever. I don't think it takes it nearly as seriously as it um, as the thing itself ultimately takes the AI in the thing itself. You know, or or, or even the, the the categories in general. Um, and I th- um, I I think that's maybe because Kant's. Um... Kant's absolute being is easier to imagine as as um, you know a character we could love than Hegel's absolute is. Uh, you know, the whole time I'm reading the phenomenology of being, I'm I'm trying to get a sense: uh, is is Hegel's absolute personal? How much is it like 
the Christian God uh, or, or right. the God of any monotheism, you know, it, is it is it personal? Um, and it, my impression is that like the the Hegel experts who've read the thing more times than I have, they would say no. No, I yeah no I I, th- I think that's right. I I just I, I also think it leaves the book in a in a weirder place narratively because I I think um, it even talks about throughout like one of the main characters Rich has this sort of Christian friend who says God gives happy endings. You know I think Roberts is thinking of like you catastrophe specifically is my guess and um, and yet the book I think goes out of its way to like give a give kind of a not happy ending except for that last tag with actual Hegel and I I actually like I liked that section but part of me thought like it was an attempt to balance things that I was maybe unsuccessful to be honest not maybe in and of itself but like it, it didn't feel like um I didn't it didn't I wasn't sure what it was countermeasuring you know and and I also wasn't sure that it, it worked to kind of like change how I thought about the Hegelian system, I guess. So the last page of the book is really just like a short essay, right? We're, we're talking last, about yeah, chapter so. nine in the Bardo. Um, in the Bardo, yeah. You were an old man. At so, yeah. you know, because again, we've, we've, you are this, you are a farmer, you are whatever. And actually the beginning of Rich's chapter is you are rich, right? I mean, so it's making it clear that all of this is happening within the context of this, this being that is the absolute and is also in some way something different from the absolute going through and living everyone's lives, right? And it opens with, you are an old man living in a, well, it opens within the Bardo subject and object are the same, but then you are an old man living in a European city, et cetera, et cetera. It's very clearly, it's Hegel, right? Um, and, but then there's this like two paragraph, um, like it's, it's not, I, I'm calling it an essay. It's maybe not quite right, right? But it's, it's very much him talking to the reader, right? You know, you are here in the Bardo. So is everyone you've ever known, everyone you have ever loved, everyone you have ever lost and grieved for, and you have all the time in the world for what is the world except time. And then, of course, he has a Wittgenstein. The world is not everything that is the case. The world is everything that is the time to do this. And that you, you, the only real thing in the world is love, and you love, you don't love in general, you love this person, this thing, this life. You love this, 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 and this, and this, and this loves you back. This is the only thing in the world and it is precise and specific and real, and it is everything and infinitude. And that's the end of the book, right? And so it's it's like it feels almost like an essay, an attempt to say, this is why this system, for all of its horror and violence and its it's attractive, it's, yeah. the, the reason it, it, it didn't like hive minds because they they annihilate specificity, right? Um this is why this system is still in some way good. And uh, I, I thought it was a very interesting approach. Again, I, I don't really know Hegel well enough to say if it's true to Hegel or not. I, I just don't have an opinion about that. Well, it was just, there's a couple of like very definite references to the text, but I'm, I'm trying to get from those to like, so what is Robert saying about Hegel? Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not, I'm not sure I have an intelligent answer to that, but um the very last paragraph life is this connection life is this love knowledge and opposition for it sinks to mere edification and insincerity when it lacks the seriousness of love okay that mere edification thing is a a reference to like one of several really really famous passages where he's 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 trying to distinguish what hegel's trying to distinguish whatever it is he's talking about from a kind of He's trying to distinguish philosophy, I think, proper from uh, 
edification, the eternal religion, love. It, it goes something like that. Um, the pain of it, it's patience with the way it works, the negative. Um, you cannot truly love yourself. Um, you can only love another and through that encounter with dif difference, you come to love yourself. I mean, that's yeah. very straight Hegel. And then um, the whole, like this, 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 this. He has... He has a thing. Um, I want to say it's in the. Ah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this all wrong, but he has a. There's another famous um, section of the phenomenology that talks about kind of how using the tr how how uh, the speech act of saying this sort of works. Um, and having brought that up, I should now say something about that section. But all, all I can do is identify <laughs> that there is a reference there. It's been it's been, it's been several months. God, you know, it's it's like trying to recall a weird dream you had. Yeah, I think I sometimes think my entire sort of quasi literary criticism life is just to say these two things are similar in some way. I don't know how. Thanks for your time. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If I, pretty if, much my whole life. <laughs> if I were writing an essay and getting paid for this, I would try to come up with a. I would reread that section, and I would come up with a, a whole. Uh, I would come up with something intelligent to say. Um, well, we're so just spitballing well, here. I, it's true. No, that's that's the podcast. You know, it's the beauty of it. Um, so I, I, there is a maybe a nice transition there with you know you mentioned just um, there are so many references in this in this book. Um, and that's that's definitely Adam Roberts, you know, uh, mode of operation. He, that's how he moves forward through everything. Um, but I want to reach into my my big bag of big read cast tropes here and, and put on my Gene Wolfe T-shirt. Um, Let's do it. <laughs> well, so I, I just actually um, I, I, the last one we did we talked about Gene Wolfe's The Wizard Knight, which I I. I said to you, Bill, it was like, I, I haven't encountered a lot of books that are this original and yet which are built so entirely out of other books, like very specific references. And then I read the this. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought about how, um, how many, uh, how many references he's doing kind of casually for fun, you know, like Popeye or whatever. Right. And he even talks about references and, and so forth. But actually like, um, you know, there's the chapter that's called 2084, which uses the actual, like, characters, essentially, from um, 1984. At least he uses the names of Oceana and Eurasia and Thinkpole. Um, there's the kind of middle section of the book where one of the basically two main characters is essentially reenacting a kind of Starship Troopers storyline. And it even has a lot of the Starship Troopers, like, feeling to it. Like, he does a great job with some of the marine interactions. Um, and so I don't know. So I, I, I think this is not just me being like a bookish person who wants to know more about books, but even the very first chapter in the Bardo, um, there's all the great stuff that, you know, there's all the great scenes where he takes us through history of like, you know, you are a farmer, you, you know, you're a caveman of some kind, so forth, so on, you know, you're a priest who goes to the coast and dies, whatever. Right. But he, uh, but a, a big chunk of it does go through like possible future storylines. In fact, it, it almost feels like, um, what it must be like to be Adam Roberts reading all of sci-fi. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean like, it does like every storyline possible and tries to create something new out of it. So I, for, I guess for, I just, I feel like this book is about some, in some ways um, the book as a technology of, if not hive mind, some kind of th synthesis 
And um, I'm not I'm not sure I have, a, I have a good question from this, but I, I I guess if I do have a question, maybe it's like I'm curious how you guys think the 2084 chapter fits in there, like within the plot, but also like within this larger project. To me, it seems like it was a fun chapter, and I I think I can explain it, but it does feel like the outlier as far as um, not being quite as maybe like obviously essential to the whole book. Yeah, so I'll, let me talk a bit about what actually happens in that chapter, and then I'll kick it to you to actually answer Joel's question, Phil. So the 2084 chapter is the seventh, yeah, seventh chapter of the book, so it's after most of the uh, plot has happened. Um, but we cut now to a world where Oceania, or however you say that word, Oceania, I don't know, that word, Eurasia and East Asia, which are the three superpowers in Orwell's 1984, are still, you know, are, are alive. They use Orwell's... Uh, Newspeak, I think is what it's called, but the, you know, double plus ungood language that Orwell proposes. Uh, all the official communications are in that language, not in English. Um, and the, the the main difference is that the three superpowers are hive minds uh, of something like the this, right? Uh, they have some kind of, so being a member of the inner party is actually being part of the gestalt, part of the, uh, you know, overarching hive mind consciousness of East Asia, say. Uh, and we have a guy who was in the inner party and now isn't. I forget why exactly, but he's he's now you know an individual being, but he's still working for the party, basically as a translator with this other woman who is one of the only people in the world who is completely disconnected from the party, right? Uh, and she is like an astronomer. She she has a radio telescope, and she finds uh, reason to believe that there's another organism out there in the world that you know around this star over here. There is a planet and there's something putting out signals from there. And so that, of course, defies party orthodoxy, which is that there are three organisms in the world. And, uh, you know, the, I, think it, I think it's even like a, heli or a geocentric like cosmology, I think. Um, right. This is official party uh, ideology. But they're interested in this and the two superpowers that are uh, allied want to know more about who this fourth person might be. Right. Who this person and the other planet is. And so they send him out to talk to her to communicate that and so on and so forth. And eventually the message comes in and it's from Abby. It's from the absolute itself saying, they said, hello, it took 10 years for their greeting to reach the person to whom it was addressed. But time was of very little concern to Oceania and Eurasia. 10 years after that, they received their reply, quote, my dudes, I'm Abby. And these here are ancestral voices prophesying war. And that's the end of the chapter. And in the next chapter, which is the one where Adon sort of goes to heaven and talks to Abby Solute, uh, which is she's living in, or he or she it is living in a stately pleasure dome, you know, decreed, which fits a lot of references to Xanadu and Kublai Khan for reasons we're going to have to talk about, I'm sure. And there's a line there about how there are alternate universes. So in addition to this one timeline that we've spent all of our time in, there's 12 other alternate universes, basically. And one of them is this 2084 universe and... Because Abby is trying to stop the this slash HM theta from fully reaching its apotheosis, they were looking at other universes to see about ways in, and this was an attempt to reach out to one of the other ones. And so as far as I can tell, in terms of the plot of the book, it's really just, well, I was looking at other universes to see if I could find a way to stop this and didn't get very far. And I think that's really the entire plot relevance of that chapter. Um, but obviously it's got other stuff going on with the metaphor and the project of the book as a whole. So first of all, do we agree that that's really the plot relevance of that chapter? Yeah, that seems right to me. Okay. And then, so Phil, I will let you answer Joel's question, which I have forgotten what it was because I got distracted. <laughs> you, you can go whatever direction you want, Phil. I'm curious about the way you think this book deals with books, period, to be honest. 
<laughs> yeah, what 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 it's doing besides besides plot work that could have been done in some other way. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I mean, I guess as I've been thinking about it again, um, while we've been talking, I, I what I got left with by that chapter was of a very strong sense of the way that a a a, a two um, I don't know in a in a society where there's too intense of a conflict between what I guess we could call individualism and what what we could call collectivism I don't even like talking in this tenth grade government class kind of level of generality about it but like yeah when those two things become locked in opposition to each other they they are both they both become stupefied in in really interesting ways so basically it's it's illustrating like when the tension between uh, those particular that particular set of antithetical qualities um when the tension between you know those two things become between that thesis and that antithesis becomes too too ossified and too rigid um because on the one hand it's you know he 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 sort of adopts the style of and and does a really good job frankly i think of pastiching the style of of orwell's 1984 oh, yeah. and so and so he gets across the just sheer stupidity of uh like the and the the chosen stupidity of of a world that talks to itself like that and and the way that a, a kind of dishonest and censorious political speech can um you know can be like a self-applied like brain wound you know uh can actually yeah. make make you stupider and then you know but when he's interacting with the scientist i mean she's got to work with and um you know she's she's brave but she's kind of unpleasant and condescending and flinty in a way that as i remember that scene you know in the way that you would be if you were dealing with um you know hive-minded idiots all day long so it, it just kind of feels like you know in a, in a book that is kind of taking up the idea of how thesis and antithesis generate synthesis together um this is that chapter is an illustration of like uh when what what it can look like when uh synthesis isn't being properly generated uh and and yeah uh, there the conflict just becomes so rigid and routinized that that neither neither individualism nor collectivism or you know neither term a nor term b like can be its its best self does that does that make sense i no i think that's yeah i think that's that's really well said and i i love when you use sophomore you know terminology because i I can follow it really well (laughs) (laughs) that's that's the level i need you know the other thing about it about about it though might might just be like this is an adam roberts book do you you remember in in the thing itself you're just you're just moving along and suddenly he's he just he just decides to do the final book of Ulysses just cause he yes. can, just cause he can. Penelope's and it, mother. Come on, man. And he makes it, he makes it fit. He makes it work. It's good. 
it it isn't just sheer showing off, but it's also like, bro, f- you. Are <laughs> you so good at this? <laughs> well, that's that's one of the things I thought was interesting. The thing itself is half this one narrative of the thriller story, and then half you know collected short stories set in the universe. Of the These thing interpolations, itself, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, each of which is is vamping on or pastiching a particular either work or at least a style, right? Everything from Joyce to, you know, something more like early 20th century weird fiction and then, like, basically like a Clark's World story towards the end, right? Um, you know, sort of more modern uh, or more contemporary uh, sci-fi. Uh, but whereas in the thing itself, there's one every other chapter. So you're like, well, this is what this book is, right? Uh, this book, it's like, here's nine chapters, one of which is this. Yeah. And it's a little bit stranger i think i almost wonder and again this is where i haven't read the phenomenology of spirit but i know in his interview with you phil he said he was trying to in some way mirror or or you know vamp on the structure of that text and so i wonder if is there like a 11th hour zag in hegel that would help make some more sense of this because i I don't know the whole book is 11th hour zags Um, (laughs) yeah that's fair (laughs) okay well i know uh i okay this is kind of a this is like a Hail Mary um, seminar, like lit grad grad school lit seminar con- uh, comment where you're like, um, but what if really all of the is isn't every novel just a retelling of Plato's Republic? No, it's not. <laughs> but you blew everybody's mind for a second. But I I know that there that there is one section that comes fairly late in the phenomenology of being that I went through several times and I just the that weight would not lift <laughs> and yeah. I it was fascinating to listen to because um, I was both reading and also listening to like a, an old LibriVox audiobook like I would go running and try to understand Hegel and I would you you brave man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would be like I would I would be like having to slow down because I was literally like like my brain was diverting energy from my legs. And, and so I would put that put the section on and listen to it again and be like, no, nah, I still don't know what the hell just happened there. But it, it's the the inverted world section where for some reason oh, his his argument requires that he just start talking about the inverted world where um i don't know black is white and up is down and 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 people are like people yeah have been fighting for like 200 years about what the hell this means and why it's there and what role it plays in his argument and nobody well having having not read it but nevertheless, we can. I think we can get some connections to the twenty eighty four chapter there, just based on your description of it, right? I mean, isn't black is white, up is down? Isn't that one of the like victory is life? Not victory is life. That's DS nine. But it's a different universe where where Newspeak can kind of say. I mean, the Newspeak uh, in the you know Orwell's Newspeak allows you to just say, uh, okay, now now everything's its opposite. <laughs> Um, which is which is what it feels like Hegel does at that point in the book. He just he's it, to me it just I'm sure there's a good reason for it, but it just felt like he was playing Calvin Ball and saying, "Okay, new rules. Everything is its opposite now." But I mean, I think that's I mean, the Ministry of Love is is what the secret you know the CIA is called in. Orwell. Yeah, like there is stuff where he he explicitly calls things the wrong name in Orwell. This is where I haven't read 1984 in a long time. 
but also there's the, you know the party taught you to disbelieve the evidence of your eyes and ears and i think he says something like about like believing white is black yeah and nice. so that's that's a connection and also obviously this is a this is a, a mirror universe of the this because as joel was saying earlier the this and hm theta when you get in it you're happy right everybody who's in the this is happy nobody leaves deliberately the one person helen Susanna, when she leaves she's glad she did but she says that you couldn't choose to leave because you were so happy and it would be like plucking out your own eyeball like it is physically possible there's nothing physically stopping you from doing that and there's a horrible story that was going around on the internet a while ago about a gal who took a sufficient quantity of methamphetamines that she did do that as a side note which is a rough essay to read but anyway uh you could you know there's nothing physically stopping you from removing your eyeball with your hands except that you cannot do that right and so the this is a is a, is a blissful state right he, that's the word he uses repeatedly whereas the hive minds in 2084 i don't think are a blissful state for anybody right never mind the people who are on the outside of them so it is sort of a mirror universe version of this otherwise successful and blissful hive mind so yeah maybe that is what he's doing he's it's the inverted world chapter i'm going to call it that and then if adam roberts listened to this he'll write us a letter saying you idiots know it's his other thing and that's fine you can laugh at us the hegel experts can laugh at me Hey, look, man, I tried, okay? I really tried. No, I, but I, I think that it makes sense because it, it is this really weird, peculiar thing where you have this book where you sort of understand the rules and then all of a sudden you have this other literary pastiche in it that, again, its plot relevance is, I think, two sentences long. And it's a good bit. Like, it's a, as you said, it's a very successful pastiche. It's enjoyable. I enjoyed reading it. But I was sort of like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, I, I do think there, um, the, the chapter or the section where you have the scientist who's actually maybe not a scientist who's trying to trick um, HM Theta into, you know, deluding itself about a war that happens. Very complicated plot for no one's read the book. Anyway, the, the chapter where um, she describes terraforming Venus, I, I actually, that, yeah. that felt to me actually like a very uh, speed run pastiche of like Kim Stanley Robinson or something. You know what I mean? Like he, he goes. Oh, it, it's got to be. Yeah, he goes so he goes so into detail in a way he doesn't often do. So I I, I actually think that's that, that also drew my attention as far as, um, you know the, the pastiche the pastiche skill he has. I think he does sneak it in there even when it's not as flagrant as twenty eighty four. Um, no, there, there's there's no way the terraforming Venus stuff isn't talking about Kim Stanley Robinson. He even um, uses some of the same technology that KSR does. Uh, they talk about having a Saleta which is a made-up sort of mirror, basically, you put in space that allows you to concentrate sunlight and therefore change the climate of the planet. He contrasts the hive mind's Soleta on Venus with the ones they have in Mars, the humans, the regular humans have on Mars, which I read Red Mars a few years ago, I'd have to double-check, but I think it's basically the same gadget, right? So there's no way he's not channeling KSR when he, and you know, there's, there's a 0% chance he hasn't read that trilogy. And I would say there's about a 2% chance he's not deliberately referencing that with that section. No, he, he loves Robinson. Um, and he's, he's, he's got the style down, right. In that it feels like he's, uh, you, you know, that, that voice Robinson sometimes uses that is like the hip, cool engineering professor. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. He's conjuring. Yeah, he's conjuring that voice, which, honestly, I know this is terrible, uh, and Adam Roberts will be pissed off if he listens to this. But like, that puts me off of of Kim Stanley Robinson a little bit. Uh, it, it's it just. Yeah. He, he. He. He's a little boring. It, like this feels a little bit like, a, a person who is maybe not as, as. Um, good of a 
engineering understander, uh, but a better <laughs> prose stylist <laughs> adapting yes. himself to a lesser prose style. Um, but I, I know Rob, Roberts reveres Robinson and, and would dissent very sharply from that. That's my, that's just my opinion. <laughs> So I, the, All right, you're going to get canceled by Adam Roberts on Twitter, Phil. <laughs> you shouldn't have done that. Think of the puns he'll come up with for you, you know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You, you, can do a, you can do a lot with Christman. Christ, say, man, I, yeah, that's the I stupidest thing I've ever heard. So I, I think we're probably, we're probably nearing um, some of Bill's ending stuff with the, uh, you know, the, the fun game show he has and then some, maybe some of our favorite things. <laughs> I, I do have one kind of last big dumb question, which I, I, I'm sorry, Phil, it is basically for you. Um, and it's not even about the book at all, but like I, I do, I have my own theory, but I, I find it fascinating that like I of course came to Adam Roberts, um, this self-described British atheist, because a bunch of Christians kept recommending him. <laughs> you know, John Wilson yep. <laughs> when he was the ed- when he was the editor of Books and Culture, John John Wilson like made the thing itself his book of the year or whatever it was. Alan Jacobs of course is thanked in uh, you know several of the books, including this one. Yeah, and so I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, again, this is a very like talk about tenth grade questions, but like, what do you think is the ongoing appeal of Adam Roberts to that like subset of smart people? Well, hang on before before you answer that question, Phil, you almost missed our oh my gosh, Francis Spufford reference. Oh my gosh, <laughs> also Francis. So I don't know Spufford. if you know this, Phil Christman, <laughs> but Francis Spufford is we we describe him as the patron saint of the podcast because. Uh, the very first podcast episode we did was about the worst journey in the world, the absolutely Cherry Garrard uh, Antarctic, like Captain Scott narrative, uh, which uh, Spufford wrote about a lot. And uh, so we've often referred to Spufford as the patron saint of the podcast. And of course, in the subject of smart Christians recommending Adam Roberts, that there's Hard, Francis yeah. Spufford, of course, who's, you know, and, and their buddies. And Spufford is thanked, I think, in both of these. So anyway, just we got to get that Spufford reference in. Yeah, I think of Jacob Spufford and Roberts as... Uh, I mean, they're definitely they're not some sort of literary movement or school and they don't um, agree on enough to, to constitute like an ism. But it, do- it does it does feel like there's some sort of vector that it, that includes the three of them. Um, yeah. And, and I got into Roberts in the exact same way. Um, I, I got into Roberts probably reading the exact same Alan Jacobs blog post. That- <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah he he really um he recommended the thing itself so in in terms that were so stark that i i kind of had to drop everything and read it um so yeah what is his appeal to to that crowd i i i don't know um i don't know if i can answer that intelligently because i like i both am and am not that crowd i I know and like John Wilson. Um, I have only read uh, and admired the others, um, but you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a leftist. Uh, Wilson and Roberts, or, or, or um, Wilson and um, Jacobs, <laughs> rather, are, are not. Um, I don't. I don't know like if i can walk it enough into like yeah i don't know if i can read their minds well enough yeah no it's it's definitely an impossible question i just i i, I find it i don't know i find it surprising you know because i do think i mean i think he takes christianity serious in some of his work but some of that seems to come from the interaction with spufford and jacobs like i'm not sure it predates it you know but i think i, I think that's all it is really is is that he um 
he is an imaginative enough person that he takes he takes many different like ways of looking at the universe very very seriously and and is rigorous in his attempts to be fair to them and and to fully imagine them and i i i think that's just gonna make you a lot of like friends in unlikely places and and yeah yeah. this is just one example of 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 that phenomenon um yeah i mean i i think that might be uh that might be it i mean also uh, like people who people who take old uh like works of literature from before 1990 seriously uh there are dozens of us dozens (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a good point that's a good point (laughs) yeah people who because you can still like find people doing readings of classics but like the you know the the pressure of the think piece world is is definitely all toward like okay you can review the newly rediscovered uh nyrb classics novel but you'd better you could is is there some stupid discourse that we're having right now that we won't be having in two weeks that you can somehow peg it to yeah yeah can you figure out a way to hook sigrid unset to trump please because yes yes (laughs) can you please write something called reading sigrid unset in the age of trump homer in the age of trump (laughs) Oh, I, I, I literally, I literally did that. I wanted to write about Rebecca West. You did West. that, yeah. No, I, I want to write about Rebecca West, and the editor was like, "Can you frame it around Trump?" And I was like, uh, "Yes, I'll do that because I want to write about Rebecca West." <laughs> because yeah, because you'll do, you'll do what you got to do, you know. Um, you'll, you'll use whatever peg you got to use. But no, it is, it is disheartening though. Yeah, and and Roberts, Roberts doesn't do that. He's a, he's a rigorous and historically informed reader. And at the same time, you know, he's not one of these people who just winks away everything that's politically or morally horrible about old books. Right. right. Um, he, he doesn't do that almost macho thing of like, oh, well, I'm man enough to not judge these books by my <laughs> stupid little piddly contemporary standards. Like, I don't know. I, I don't I mean, do you believe in your morals or don't you? Like, he, he, he yeah. does a good job of remaining like a person who's living in his own time period has his own particular moral moral position um but is really genuinely encountering these texts that are, are from other time periods so i think i think it's partly just that <laughs> he's neither the extremes of the sort of you know conceptual james and or of the goobers writing lists of problematic authors uh right he's, he's he's he manages to neither be neither one of those and since there's only 12 of us 12 of us they have to be friends no matter what, what they, they think. I mean, that, pretty that, much yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point um i have a couple little things i want to talk about yeah. um just real quick one um i just it was fun to read this book like two months after i read purgatory mount which is the book that he published last year um which is about dante and about memory and about phones so there's some connections between the two one of which is they both have characters who hear references to things and have to look them up on their phones right that's a recurring thing in both of these books rich um you know somebody will make a joke about something like the the one government lady her name is something hoyle i think it is and she's very tall and has kind of a right well she has sort of a round face and so they all call her olive because they call her olive hoyle but he doesn't get the reference and he gets it later when he joins the hive mind. And at the time, he's not using his phone because he's being tracked by the this. And so he says, I don't understand. Right. And but there's that way he's he's sort of reflexively Googling, uh, Googling things he doesn't understand. When Purgatory Mount, all the teenagers who are 
building their secret project always talk about side googling things like uh, Audie will hear a reference and she'll say and with a bit of side googling she understood that to be about this and so that was just kind of a fun connection um but i also uh, i think we have to talk about coleridge at least a little bit and i'm not really equipped to talk about coleridge in any level of detail so maybe all we can do depending on y'all's familiarity with him is note that it's there but so coleridge is one of roberts's main like scholarly interest right like he's he's a he's a major coleridge scholar i mean i guess right i mean that's right though right i'm not making that up no that's correct yeah yeah Yeah, okay and one of the animating references to this book in addition to hegel is to coleridge's of course very famous poem kubla khan you know in xanadu did kubla khan a stately pleasure dome decree um abby solute when they talk often will quote that right so the these are ancient voices prophesying war my dudes that's from that Obviously not the words my dudes, but the other part. Uh, and so the the secret code that they give to um, Adon to shut down the robots is weave a circle around me thrice, which is that. And when Adon goes to the sort of physical representation of where the absolute is chilling out, it's the chapter is called Xanadu, and it, it draws just many, many, many references from the poem there. So there's two things I want to say. First is a question. What's that about? Is it just Adam Roberts likes Coleridge? Because that's fine if it is, but is there something else going on? And two, this is not the first British science fiction work to make Kubla Khan an important part of the text. Um, have you guys read Douglas Adams's Dirk Gently, the first one? No, I have I, I not. Have not. Yeah. Okay, so it's a weird book. Uh, it's Adams when he's not doing... Adams is always deeply weird, and he's uh, his non-Hitchhiker stuff is actually even weirder. But in Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency... It's been a few years since I've read this. I'm not going to get it quite right. But uh, so it was. It started as a Doctor Who episode, for the record. Um, and they actually filmed parts of it. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, it was it was Shada and the, or Shada or whatever. And then uh, and then the BBC went on strike and, and it was never finished. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's because there's a bit in the book when they run into a professor who's weird and has a room in his house, his flat, which is, you know, a TARDIS, basically. And he obviously, it's not literally a Doctor Who novel, but it's he doesn't sand the serial numbers off too hard, right? Which is fair, because Adams was writing for Doctor yeah, Who. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the thing is, like, when they, they're hanging out at the, at, like, the Coleridge Society in Cambridge, and somebody reads the whole poem with the narration breaking up the, you know, a paragraph or so at a time and talking about other stuff, and then... that chapter ends with and then he started to read the second section of the poem which is much weirder so of course as everyone knows uh coleridge at least claims that the whole thing came to him in like a a dream and then he got interrupted as he was writing it down by was it a person from porlock is that right is that the yeah and so somebody knocked on the door and he lost it and that's why it's unfinished as my understanding is scholars say that's maybe not what actually happened but that's at least the story he told everybody well without getting too far into Douglas Adams, the way that book ends up is the poem actually included, like when it was completed, included like secret information that would allow this alien being to like prevent humanity from ever existing in the first place. And so the climax of the book is the main characters saying they're from Porlock on knocking on Coleridge's door to stop him from writing it all down, (laughs) (laughs) which is fun. Uh, But anyway, just a fun connection. There's another sci-fi book, that is really concerned with this poem but more to the point my main question which is what's the Coleridge doing in here is it just this is something Roberts knows really well and that people will reference and he'll have a good time with or is there something more important in Kublai Khan or Coleridge generally that is why the book is here why it's here in the book I mean it seems like there's gotta be like I don't know this is Adam Roberts so there's always another layer um 
I'm not sure that I know exactly what it is. Have either of you ever read his Samuel Taylor Coleridge blog? Uh, SamuelTaylorBloggeridge.blogspot.com. <laughs> I, I haven't actually. Oh my gosh. I think I've seen it, but I don't think I've read it. I don't. I don't know Coleridge at all, right? Uh, so I. I, 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 I keep. Know a little bit. I keep telling myself I'm going to do a Coleridge deep dive. Um, I I feel really insecure about my poetry reading skills. Quite frankly, uh, I feel like. I don't know. Uh, uh, most former English majors can get more out of uh, out of canonical poets than I do. But yeah, so I keep well, telling so myself I only, I only read poetry when Joel like clockwork oranges me to a chair. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, I need Joel to do that to me too. But I, I keep telling myself I'm going to do a big Coleridge deep dive, uh, and, and uh, that I'm gonna I'm gonna do it by like. Um, reading the Richard Holmes biography and then like a ton of Coleridge and then going through uh, Adam's whole Coleridge blog because it's full of like weird, crazy stuff. Like he has one entry that's about uh, an entry in Coleridge's notebook where he describes the color of pee. Uh, (laughs) And it's like, it's a damn good description. He uses the word transpicuous at one point. (laughs) That's, all right, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. That is, uh, that's 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 good. Um, yeah, but I, I, that's one of my vast reading projects that I, I have not gotten around to yet. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm definitely no Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, expert. I, I haven't read him in a long time, but I for this for this book, I did feel like it was one of the ways, um, obviously, of realizing the actual metaphysics of the world. Right, this you know, 13 shaped yurt dome thing. I think that's just like, you know, that's just honestly giving some really clear imagery grounding to the reader. <laughs> but I also, yeah, I, that makes sense. but I do also think there's a way in which it softens the whole Hegelian structure. You know, this whole violent thing um, is being, is being directed to a, you know, stately pleasure dome, right? Like that is kind of the end goal throughout the book. And I, I so I, I don't, again, I don't, I don't, I wish I, I wish I'd had more time to get into Coleridge before reading this or before talking about you guys, with you guys actually at least. But, but truthfully, there's a way in which the poetry, I, I do feel like gives an, an effable kind of lightness to the actual like murdering <laughs> that's going on throughout the book. Um, you know, the universe is, is, you know, the Hegelian absolute is the violence that's built on it to get to the collective, you know, end of time kind of thing. It, it well, the end of time kind of thing is this like um, literalization of an opioid dream. You know what I mean? Like that's like, that's a very, like, that's exactly kind of the, the blissful state that he's trying to describe throughout the novel too. Right. Is like, you know, this this bliss you don't want to give up. So yeah, so I, I mean yeah, so I, I I wish I could go deeper because I, I do feel like that's I don't always feel like this podcast is like it's not meant to um, you know shed more light on Leo Tolstoy you've never heard of <laughs> you know like, like we're, not, we're not we're not doing some grand reclamation project I, I I never really want to but I I actually do feel like Roberts has not he doesn't I don't think he gets enough critical and, and, and engagement to be honest I mean I think he's so fun and you know he's not as well known as he should be but like he. he Again, to put on my Gene Wolfe shirt, he, he's so different than Gene Wolfe. But actually, there is a way in which, like, the, the harder you press on all of his kind of, you know, surface gimmicks, the the more like real content, you know, not just leaks out, but like pours out. And um, and I think in this case, in specific, I think the thing itself, 
I, I reread it for uh, our podcast with Martin, and I reread part of this. I got through like a, a read and a half, and I do feel like I have a much better appreciation for the first part than the second part, you know? And I, I just, I, yeah, I think he's operating on so many levels at all times that it deserves the kind of engagement, even though, like, I, I don't know, to always emphasize this, it's such a rollicking ride. He really loves, like, these yeah. sci-fi tropes of adventure and war and whatnot. You know, it's not, he's not doing it just like, you know, as a paper mache for his ideas, they're also what he loves, which I really enjoy. No, I agree. It's it's something I think we can't say enough that all three Roberts books I've read are dealing with some heavy ideas, but they're very fun to read. Yeah. And, you know, if you told me somebody wrote a sci-fi novel about Kant's categories, I would say, okay, well, what's his name so I can avoid him? You know what I mean? But that's actually not what the book is like. It's really, really fun and really cool and really playful, even as it's working on just the highest level of... Um, you know, literary or academic rigor, right? Like, it's very, I, I, very I, I don't know about you, but I've been amusing myself during this recording by imagining what people must be making of this book from our description of it, because it just sounds like a, to- <laughs> because it just sounds like a weird toy box. Like, okay, now I, I think I understand the part where he does the pastiche of 1984, but what did you guys think about the, the five-page section that was just puns on Swa- on the Swahili language? I thought that was yeah. maybe a little extraneous, you know? But it, I mean, that's like... That's right. This book is like a huge toy box. All his books are like... like a, a huge toy box with all sorts of like cr- bizarre, beautiful, um, well-made, uh, and, and often old and forgotten things in them. Well, and I, I think for as much as it's not, like, I, I, I think it doesn't have to be an intellectual project to read it. I do think you have to have fun with him talking about like how our loss of the sense of smell is our loss of God or whatever it was, you know, like the odiferous God. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, like, I think, again, it's a playful idea, but, like, if you don't at least half stop and think, like, whoa, like, is that a real thing? You know, like, if you don't kind of engage the idea at the level of, you know, your own kind of questioning, it's probably not as fun to read Roberts, because I think you do have to kind of enjoy the toys he's playing with, and the toys he's playing with often are, like, you know, these philosophical concepts, however fun they are, that he, he really means it, like, you know, Hegel is being expl- explicated here. Okay, well, I, I, just, I read a lot of reviews of uh, this book. Not a lot, but I read a chunk of reviews of this book, sort of. Uh, I finished it last week to try to make some sense of it. And there were some people, you know, engaging with it and saying interesting things. And there were a lot of people saying, I enjoyed this book about hive minds. Apparently, it's also about this philosopher. But anyway, I don't know anything about that. And, <laughs> right. and that was kind of funny to read. Like, but there, there are people who did read the book with just no, I, you know, don't even know who Hegel is, who still seem to enjoy it, at least. Uh, Which is so good, you know, because cool. it shows that Roberts, yeah. is, Roberts is handling of action and his pacing and all of that, uh, like, is is enough. There were also a lot of, there was a review for Tor, and I don't want to pick on Tor too much, but I'm gonna because it's fun. Um, uh, and, and Roberts actually retweeted it, and I looked at it, and the, the book, the review is basically just, this book is a lot. I don't know. I enjoyed it, but it is a lot, <laughs> which is the exact quote. And Roberts, who very rarely gets peaked on Twitter, he didn't, obviously wasn't very mean, but he said something like, I don't know whether what that means. I don't know. Is, is it good that the book is a lot? Is it bad that the book is a lot? What does that mean? And so I, I could see him getting sort of frustrated by that. I thought he did a good, did a good job of keeping his irritation on in check that was a that was a a stupid review (laughs) i'm not saying the author was 
I'm not saying the author was stupid or anything like that, but just I I get very impatient with um, I don't know with the mere fact of 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 excess or of of difficulty or headiness or you know a lot going on. Um, right. With that being phrased as though it were bad in itself. Yeah. I. Uh, that that sets my teeth on edge. <laughs> All right, folks. Shall we? Shall we do the bit? I have a bit. Shall we do the bit? Uh, yeah, let's do the bit, Bill. All right. Welcome to Catch That Reference with your host, Adam Roberts. I'm Bill Coberly, here to ask our contestants, Joel Cuthbertson and Phil Christman, to name as many references to other things from Adam Roberts' book, The This, as they can. The prize, of course, is nothing other than making me stop doing this silly voice. <laughs> so the rules of the game are as follows. I'll turn to one of you, I'll say, name a reference to something that Adam Roberts references here, give me a sentence about what that's about, and then we'll go back to the other kit contestant. We'll do this back and forth until we either get bored or my voice gives out. First up, Phil Christman, name a reference. Well, uh, on page 328 of the ebook, uh, although I have no idea where that puts us in the in the print volume. Uh, it, well, it's actually in the section that was mentioned earlier where he's pastiching Kim Stanley Robinson. He also pastiches James Joyce. And now the snow is falling. Snow was general all over Venus. It is falling softly upon the Dickinson Impact Crater and further westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous volcanic domes of the Shield Plains. It is falling, too, upon every part of the lonely landscape where the once-temperate planet lay buried. It lies thickly, etc., etc., etc. We even get uh, the toward the end of the par paragraph, falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling... Um, this, of course, is the extremely famous uh, final paragraph of James Joyce's The Dead, uh, which is the greatest short story in the English language. So, you know, that's, a, that's pretty good. As for what it's doing there, um, that, I think, is just a flex. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why this game show is fun, folks. I haven't read any Joyce, so I didn't catch that. Uh, all right, Joel Cuthbertson. Name that reference. Uh, in the in the Starship Trooper kind of section, right when uh, the guy first goes to war, Adon, uh, <laughs> the robots start to come kill him, and he thinks, why do they want to kill him? He's just some guy. And to me, it was a verbatim, basically, quote of War and Peace. Um, when, uh, I, I can't remember, uh, his name starts with the B, I just lost his name, but one of the initial main characters who actually fades, he, um, he goes to war, and that's his first reaction. Is that he's about to be killed, and he says, "Well, but he's a good guy. Why are they trying to kill me?" And I thought, I thought that was like, you know, uh, a very subtle reference. But that's the breadth of that's the breadth of Adam Roberts. You know, War and Peace just casually snuck in there. That's a good one. All right, Phil Christman, name that reference. Well, so in the uh, w we could probably keep going with the Twitter chapter for quite a while, but in the uh, Twitter chapter, we've got. My neck is so stiff it could form a label and release an Ian Dury in the Blockheads album, which is a, relate, a, a reference to Stiff Records, the legendary home of uh, many fine recording artists. Uh, I think Chris, Kirsty McCall was on there, Ian Dury was on there, a lot of your late 70s pub rock. Um, one nice thing about this is that Robert says... 
in his interview with me and I think some other places that he originally wanted the epigraph to, to this book to be a line from the album that Elvis Costello did with The Roots. Um, and of course, Elvis Costello's first uh, record label was Stiff Records. Man, that, oh, wow. That was good, Phil. <laughs> That's good. This is where uh, you and Roberts have more in common in terms of your music tastes than I think Joe and I do with you, because I, I never would have got, got that. that. I mean, Gen, I, I'm Gen X joke, dudes. But... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're old, you know, that's the... <laughs> This is the podcast where Phil Crispin comes on and Bill makes fun of him a lot. Um, Being old. (laughs) Joel Cuthbertson, name that reference. I'm going to do an easy one because I'm going to run out soon. More because of my brain than because of Roberts. But um, uh, at one point when when the sex doll phone begins malfunctioning and talking to her owner, uh, she says, I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. And uh, yeah. the, the text literally goes, who was Dave anyway? <laughs> which is great, obviously. Yeah, which is fun because it's, it's a reference the characters don't get, which they do a couple times, which is really fun. All right, we'll do a few more. Phil Chrisman, name that reference. Oh, well, one thing we haven't mentioned is Weave a Circle Around Me Thrice, which turns out to be um, variations on that phrase turn out to be really um plot important but it also pops up very randomly as one of or, or maybe not randomly as one of the tweets in the twitter chapter um in a, in a way that almost reminds me of uh you remember in the mo- in uh, pt anderson's magnolia how you have the big frog rain at the end yeah. Um, yeah and then there's a couple of references to the the verse in exodus where the where uh the the frog rain falls on the egyptians just so that pt anderson can be like no this isn't a totally random thing that i threw in at the ending it was prophesied um yeah so that's kind of (laughs) nice all right joel last turn name that reference i'm gonna go for an easy one again um he mentions mintats more than once Mm -hmm. which obviously of course dune um, and more to my theory of, in some ways, this is Adam Roberts going through the entire history of sci-fi and reducing it into a Hegelian novel that was made for for, for, for me mostly, I think, but also for anyone who, who, who loves good novels. He also, uh, so his mom joins the, 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 the this, or the, it's not the this yet, but the, anymore, but the hive mind, right? HM Theta. And he says, wait, I thought you were religious. Aren't you like Orange Catholic or something? Which, of course, is also Dune. The Orange Catholic Bible is the, <laughs> is the, is the scripture in Dune. Um, all right. Well, I have one I'm going to do outside of the bit here. Uh, I think I mentioned it, but obviously there's a very important Wittgenstein reference at the end of the book. Uh, he says, the world is not everything that is the case. The world is everything that is the time. And, of course, the world is everything that is the case is the first proposition in Wittgenstein's Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, another famously easy text to understand. Um, (laughs) My favorite thing about that is Bertrand Russell is the reason that book exists, and he wrote that introduction saying, here's all the things this this cool young kid is saying. Isn't he neat? Look at all the cool things he's saying. And he has completely misunderstood the book. That's my favorite. Um, But anyway, uh, there's there's that Wittgenstein reference at the end, which uh, I enjoyed because I always like Wittgenstein references. But okay. So with that, we'll end this round of Name That Reference. Our winner is, of course, Adam Roberts, because he's the one who put all these in the book in the first place. Um, I have like just a couple of miscellaneous cool things I want to talk about. This is the part of the podcast, which I think we usually call Bill's Miscellaneous Cool Stuff Corner, um, where I just throw something out there and say that's cool. 
and that's it. Um, there's a, so when, when Rich is going to go agreeing to go into the hive mind as, as part of this basically suicide mission, uh, he doesn't want to, right? He's not really a hero. That's not what he's built for, but he realizes that he's going to lose his friendship with Helen Susanna, who's the, uh, the old woman with cancer that is working with the government and sort of recruits him for this. And he can't stand the thought of losing this friendship. And he realizes he's going to lose it either way, because if he, dies he's going to lose it and if he doesn't do this he's going to lose it because he's going to have disappointed her and so he decides that's why he's going to do it because he'd rather lose the friendship by dying than by disappointing his friend and i just really liked that um i like all the ways the book makes fun of adon for being stupid uh it's really good so two of the military guys when they're trying to figure out why adon has a magic word which turns off the enemy robots they pull kind of a good cop bad cop routine on him and uh it works great Right, it works excellent. And the book says, A cleverer person would have had some sense of the effectiveness of taking nasty cop off stage and replacing them with nice cop at the precise moment of the subject's emotional overload, but Adon was beautifully innocent of all such ruses. <laughs> at one point, they're talking to him about, you know, what's going on, and he doesn't really understand. And But she thinks she's, the, the general or whoever thinks she's got him in understanding, and so she says something, and he says, like, uh-huh, and the tag says, agreed or disagreed, Adon. <laughs> And that's just really funny. Um, in the 2084 chapter, they're talking about how t the two main uh, superpowers are talking to each other, but how they talk, they don't use language to talk. They change the perpetual war between them to communicate, right? So they, uh, every syllable is 100 dead people, right? Because they, by moving your troops to this place and winning that fight or losing that fight, you're communicating your opinion on this other issue, uh, which I thought was a really fun sort of, idea and also a fun sort of you know a way of making sense of these sort of hyper objects these sort of you know almost lovecraftian hive minds which i enjoyed um when adon gets uploaded to the cloud he the, the book describes it as like a person with asthma suddenly being able to breathe because it's he's never been able very good at thinking but now he you know the physical things preventing him from thinking are over so he can think now that's really cool um, yeah, there's a dozen other things I could reference, but those are some of the ones. I also want to briefly mention something which isn't a reference to make fun of myself. So in the, one of the rich chapters, the later ones, which is describing the rest of his life when he's part of the hive mind, um, uh, he's talking about climate change has, you know, eaten a lot of the coastal towns, right? And the way he says that is several towns in England have gone the full Dunwich. And because I'm an idiot, I was like, I don't understand this reference, Adam. The Dunwich <laughs> horror, I don't know how to connect that. Like, it's... Uh, like the, the towns somehow produced a being that was half human and half yogs of thought. Like, you mean Innsmouth? Like, I don't understand. What, oh, Dunwich is a real place, Bill. It's a real place in England that got swallowed up by the coastline due to erosion. Not everything is about Lovecraft. You idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Not everything is literature. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's like the time uh, that a friend of mine, one of the best poets I've ever met, he said something like, well, that's, I was complaining about something in my life and he was like, well, lately I've been thinking a lot about what James said. And I was like, Henry or William? And he was like, he just stared at me uh, and was like, James, the brother of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Never been so owned in my life. <laughs> That's very good. All right. Does anybody else have any cool stuff they want to mention real quick? I, I do. Uh, yeah, actually just two, two things. Um, he manages to talk about how work has become play and play work, which is more, I think, Hegelian stuff, but also just like how it feels to be alive right now sometimes. Um, 
but then he kind of talks about this <laughs> this issue of living in a world where everything is like you know like death is not the antithesis of life but actually boredom is <laughs> and he talks about how we've entered this like all-consuming entertainment complex where he calls it the the toy event horizon which i just thought was a great phrase and in general that you know that riffing on <laughs> entertaining ourselves to avoid death was or the fear of death actually was was really good and then we, we should have talked about it more and i won't because this podcast has gone long but um i do think like the thing itself this is a novel which i think um, meaningfully delves into like basically um, an incel's brain <laughs> in some ways that sex is very important to these novels of technology that he does and philosophy and I, I think um, at least one of the main characters here you know it seems to like almost follow some 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 of the the checklist you would make to like call someone an incel and yet he he does kind of meaningfully you know chase down his his vulnerabilities and, and even kind of makes him a hero in the end, which I thought was once again, a, a really impressive trick. So do we have anything for Phil's cool stuff corner or shall we move on? Well, I just noticed I'm looking again at the very, the opening, you do this, you do that, um, Oregon trail chapter. And, uh, <laughs> I just, I just noticed yet <laughs> another really reference <laughs> that really just puts cinches how much this book is a tour of the history of science fiction. It's, 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 Roberts being both like inside and outside of the totality of science fiction as a genre. Uh, you compete in the sex Olympics, but your gold medal is stripped from you when it is discovered that your genitals were being remotely controlled by an accomplice back in the training camp. That is a reference to Nigel Neal's uh, Afternoon of the Sex Olympics or whatever it's called, which is a dystopian satire from 1968. That, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm like... Nigel Neal is most famous in this country for doing uh, the Quatermass serials, which are classics of UK science fiction. Really good. I love Nigel Neal. And then he also wrote Halloween 3, which is the one with the masks that turn the kids' faces into (laughs) snakes. Uh, So Nigel Neal, land of contrasts. But he he was a very prolific television writer. Uh, and it's, I, I love him. I think he's underrated in this country at least. And it's just made me very happy to see that reference. You love to see it. You do. I I love when a writer has like two lives that don't seem to make any sense together. Like the essayist, uh, Tom Bissell or Bissell or however you say it, who, you know, writes a lot of essays about literature and whatever else. And also has written the last three gears of war games. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Or, or, uh, Brian Evanson, one of our finest literary horror writers, and the author of several Alien and Dead Space franchise tie-ins. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Thing. It's, it's excellent work. That's what I want. You know, sort of the, I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates is in some ways sort of the uh, apotheosis of this, writing, you know, all those essays and also writing Black Panther and Captain America for a while. Problem, of course, is he wasn't particularly good at writing Captain America, but that's a separate issue. Yeah, so. he's not my favorite Captain America writer, but if DC Comics wants to, to take a risk on me writing Hawkman, uh, I will not let them down. I'm just putting that out. It's <laughs> good to be. We need to we we need to figure out how to have like the Tom King trajectory where you you know you have some sort of other weird career and then just write some of the greatest comics of all time. Uh, yeah, but you have to be in the there, CIA, but... don't you? I was like, going to say that's I, yeah, well, there's a downside to the start of that. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, I said some other kind of career. I didn't say explicitly <laughs> we had to do Tom King's thing. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, so I'm already doing my time in the evil minds. So. Yeah, I like your but... version of this better than Tom King's version of this. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. The, the, the first career part, anyway. 
In fairness, I don't think Tom King comes out of it being like, boy, am I glad about everything I did in the CIA. But yeah. Okay. Well, I think we might be wrapping up here. Does anybody else have anything in particular they really want to say here? Uh, read Adam Roberts. He's he's excellent. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, yeah, this podcast is fun. Sorry, go ahead, Phil. Oh, I was just I was just gonna do the usual. Thanks for having me on, fellas. This was a this was a lot of fun. You guys are delightful. It was a lot of fun. At least I think so. Uh, this is a fun podcast because it is both the first episode we've done that's about an author we've done before, right? We've never done two episodes about an author before, unless you count that. We split up the N.K. Jemisin Broken Earth trilogy into three episodes, but I don't think that counts because it was all back-to-back. It's also the first time we've done a podcast episode where we had a guest who's somebody who wrote a book that we did before. So we're checking off a lot of uh, of stuff here. So thanks, Phil Chrisman. We really like Midwest Futures and How to Be Normal. Um, You know, as I've... I've, I think I told you before, that essay on masculinity you wrote is... uh, foundational in my head to thinking about some of this stuff and i can't even avoid referencing it when i'm writing a piece about cops as you may have noticed so for listeners to the podcast we have our next book picked out our september big read september ish as always is uh the long ships by franz g bankson uh there was a pretty new nyrb edition and uh joel talked me into another book about vikings so that's fun <laughs> i guess sigrid Unset isn't about vikings but you know she's about I mean, her sons are like, her sons are Vikings. These little they monsters. really are. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't know a lot about the book, frankly, at this point, but it's about a, a Viking who goes in Vikes places. So I'm very excited about it. Uh, we'll be doing that sometime in the next month or two, and we know what our end of year one is too. But we'll keep it secret in case Joel changes his mind because it's definitely me making him read something. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, Joel and Phil again. Thank you so much for being on today. I had a really good time. I hope you guys did too. Yeah, thank you, Phil. It was good talking to you. Yeah, thank you guys again. This was awesome. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.